Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I was born to love you. I was born to lick your face. I was born to rub you, but you were born to rub me first. Wow. That is uh, something. I don't even know how to respond to that, really. I, I always know you like my musical interludes. Yeah, is, uh, you know, your your singing is only rivaled by, I, I don't even know, I, I don't even know. When we record these, we record it, you know, uh, we're on a Zoom-like application here on the computer, so I get to see Josh's face when I do this, and uh, it's worth it for that. And And Josh... As you know, this movie that we're covering was filled with improvisation, and uh, this scene was an improvised song uh, by Chevy Chase, so we're giving a little love to the format here. Yeah, and this whole podcast is improvised, so it really uh, is relevant. So what movie is that that we're talking about? Well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1980, And this episode is our pick for a notable feature debut from a filmmaker. And that filmmaker is Harold Ramis, and the film is Caddyshack, which is uh, not only Harold Ramis's first film as a director, but one of the most popular and successful films of 1980, and uh, one of probably the most influential comedy films, at least of the decade, So, which we'll, I'm sure, talk about later. And... This could have been a cult classic for us this season as well. I mean, obviously, it was a hit, but it grew in status so much over the decade, as you mentioned, whether it was cable or uh, home video rental, that it just kind of became a, a much bigger hit as uh, as more people had access to it. Yeah, it did. I don't know if a cult classic is the right way to describe it, because like you said, it was a big hit out of the gate and just became a bigger hit. But certainly, uh, it has its dedicated following that has grown over time. Um, But it was a big success right away, uh, grossing $60 million worldwide on its budget of $4.8 million and uh, building off of the comedy careers of Harold Ramis and the stars Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield, but especially uh, Ramis and Murray and Chase. Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, of course, have their history on Saturday Night Live. There was uh, Stripes before this, I believe, right? Was was earlier than this with Bill Murray that Harold Ramis worked on as a writer. And Harold Ramis also worked on, as a writer on Animal House. So a lot of comedy pedigree coming into this movie that people were excited to see the next work from these people. And I think you left out the most influential one in this, which was Doug Kenny, the writer and co-creator of the National Lampoon magazine and, you know, the Animal House uh, co-writer as well like this is all stemming from that national lampoon brand of humor yeah there's definitely a, a very national lampoony vibe even though this isn't officially a national lampoon film so it was a big hit with audiences uh critics less so no. josh real fast stripes was 1981 the year after this. okay so maybe was it was it meatballs that that marie and ramus worked on before this yeah meatballs and animal house both came before this okay that's yeah that's that's what i'm thinking of so that that sort of momentum from these comedy hits whether it's meatballs animal house saturday night live 
uh, or just National Lampoon in general that these guys had all been working on. And critics very familiar with all of those and comparing this film uh, to those other films. But Roger Ebert was uh, mixed-ish. A lot of these reviews kind of acknowledge a bit of the comedy, but overall are not super positive. Roger Ebert said, Caddyshack never finds a consistent comic note of its own, but it plays host to all sorts of approaches from its stars, who sometimes hardly seem to be occupying the same movie. There's Bill Murray's self-absorbed craziness, Chevy Chase's laid-back bemusement, and Ted Knight's apoplectic overplaying. And then there is Rodney Dangerfield, who wades into the movie and cleans up. Maybe one of the movie's problems is that the central characters are never really involved in the same action. Murray's off on his own, fighting gophers. Dangerfield arrives, devastates, exits. Knight is busy impressing the caddies, making vague promises about scholarships and launching boats. If they were somehow all drawn together into the same story, maybe we'd be carried along more confidently. And I think to me too, that was one of the things that struck me is this movie essentially doesn't really have a plot. It's just a bunch of little comedic bits, a lot of which are funny, but it, it doesn't really have a whole lot of structure to it. Well, Josh, to have a structure, you might have to have a completed script that people are going from. And while there was a script, it seemed like, you know, uh, I mean, look, we know like these are huge. Um, another, I don't know if you had mentioned Second City, but a lot of these guys came from Second City in Chicago. And, you know, they improv was not, it's not just a game to them. It's a form on how to build and create and get to the, the heart of comedy, right? So a lot of the script was either thrown out or rewritten or just ignored, right? So what you get is a mishmash. And I think um, if you don't go with the ride, then you're just, you're going to be out from the, the moment that you start this thing. Right. And I think, I mean, I, I did have a lot of fun uh, with most of those aspects. Um, and this is the kind of movie that I tend not to like. I mean, we've talked about in multiple episodes, especially Dave is often picking these kind of lowbrow comedies as his pick, <laughs> and I don't respond to them. So I was uh, uh, unsure of how I would feel about this film. But I think probably because a lot of that is improv, and these guys who are very talented to get to kind of go off on their own little riffs that are a lot of fun, I enjoyed that. But it was definitely a movie that you know, at a certain point, I realized like, okay, there really just isn't a story of any kind to follow here. And, and obviously that's not really what they're aiming for. So I read, um, Caddyshack, the making of a Hollywood Cinderella story by Chris and Nashawadi, uh, the book on Caddyshack and, uh, uh Josh and I, uh, Dave and you did too. You watched Caddyshack too also, right? I think that I would did, be a more, yeah. a more interesting book because <laughs> it's such a <laughs> horrible thing. Uh, but anyway, the whole thing is Caddyshack. Originally, the story was supposed to be about Danny Noonan and those caddies and their relationships and rivalries and the scholarship and all that stuff because Brian Doyle Murray, the other writer on this, um, grew up as a caddy and so did Ramis and Bill Murray in, in uh, Illinois. And then when they started watching the dailies, as you mentioned, you got Bill Murray, you got Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield really was a huge breakout star here. Ted Knight, obviously playing the heavy, like, so they're like, no, we're going the complete opposite way. We're going to just focus on the funny and wherever the story falls, the story falls. Yeah. And that is a weird tension where, especially coming to this, like I had not ever seen it before. And the reputation is, oh, this is a crazy comedy with Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield. 
And it is, but the way that it focuses on those caddy characters, and especially Danny Noonan, uh, the character played by Michael O'Keefe, it's um, Noonan. It was a surprise to me that like, oh, this sort of boring teenager is really actually the main character of the movie is a little strange. Um, but that that uh, that process absolutely makes sense that they would see those other guys as as more entertaining to focus on. So uh, Vincent Canby in The New York Times, also mildly complimentary in a backhanded way. He said, Caddyshack, the newest Animal House spinoff is this summer's Meatballs, a movie that tears the lid off the apparently placid life at a waspy country club to expose bigotry, ignorance, lust, and a common tendency to cheat on the golf course. Caddyshack is a pleasantly loose-limbed sort of movie with some comic moments, most of them belonging to Mr. Dangerfield, who predates Animal House by a number of years. It's not as funny as Cheech and Chong's next movie, but it is less pushy than Meatballs. It is not as thickly stocked with outrageous moments as Animal House, yet it is far easier to take than Where the Buffalo Roam. So that's sort of his summary of the state of comedy at that moment. I, I don't even know if where the Buffalo Rome was a comedy. That's Bill Murray playing Hunter S. Thompson in a um, in a, an effort that um, did not go so well from what everyone says. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie. Um, and I think you're right that there may be less of a comedy, but maybe just because it was a Bill Murray vehicle that was out around this time, he decided to cite it. Maybe Vincent can be not the world's foremost expert on lowbrow comedy would just be my guess. Uh, he's, he's not really sitting, uh, not doing casting calls with Lauren Michaels to get the, the new uh, SNL not ready for primetime players. Probably not, but he's willing to give Caddyshack a little credit. And I think that that loose limbed characterization that he uh, has for it is, is similar to what we're talking about, that it's just kind of, you know, with all the improv, and it's kind of episodic, and here's some little bits that are just strewn together, and that's uh, that's the end result. Yeah, I think what happens is that, like, you know, we've mentioned, like, Super Troopers on this show, which is clearly takes a lot from, like, Caddyshack, right? And Dave and I like it, and you don't, and that's fair. If the bits work for you, then you just are like, cool, this is fun. But if not, then <laughs> it's just, there's really nothing there for you, because what else can you go with? Right. There's not a lot of narrative through line to focus on. There isn't a lot of character development or emotional involvement or anything to bolster the comedy. Either the jokes, like you say, either the jokes work for you, you find them funny or you don't. And then you're going to have a rough time with this. And I did find a lot of them funny. So. Yeah. You see, you, yeah. You don't have yeah. to defend yourself. You twice well, have I, told us now. I, I feel like because <laughs> there's, we had so many of these, these kinds of episodes where I uh, feel the opposite. I want to I want to make it clear that I'm not I'm no Vincent Canby. Yeah. No, you're not. No. <laughs> Thank you. You're no you're no uh Bosley Crowther either. Yeah, I don't know if Bosley Crowther ever saw this film. Um so uh on the extreme negative end, uh Arthur Knight in the Hollywood Reporter said, "To attempt a critical evaluation of Caddyshack is a little like describing the aesthetic qualities of an outhouse." Its jokes are almost entirely scatological, deriving from such socially questionable practices as farting, vomiting, and nose picking. In one protracted sequence, a chocolate candy bar afloat in a swimming pool is mistaken for a turd, causing the pool to empty in a Jaws parody. It closes with Bill Murray finding the bar and biting into it, 
causing a nearby matron to faint dead away. Quiet good taste, that's what I like. Having established the level of humor in the screenplay, I can only add that its large and manic cast, drawn mainly from television, sustains that level with a chilling persistence. While Johnny Mandel's score seems intent on burying everything beneath its deafening roar. Dave, you're the yeah. score expert. Did you find this score uh, unpleasant? I didn't notice that at all, but I did think it was funny uh, to to point out that they're all from TV when these are some of like the biggest movie stars yeah. like after this point. You it was know? a good dig. It was like, a, what a dig, right? You know? Yeah. We're right. Well, successful think, on television. I mean, I think especially at this time, you know, we don't see this now, but the TV was certainly regarded as like the, a much lower art form sure. for yeah. a long period of time. So that is considered a, a dig. Josh, yeah. how do you how do you feel about vomiting as a social practice? It's not really like something people just go out and attempt to do in most places, you know. No, I mean I think vomiting is sort of uh, involuntary usually, but um, yeah, I don't. It's weird because the way he describes this is kind of what I expected. I thought, oh, this is going to be a bunch of vulgar bodily function humor that I'm not going to like. And the scene that he describes there in detail with the candy bar in the pool that everyone thinks is a turd, I, I didn't think was particularly funny. But I feel like a lot of the humor in this movie is wittier than just the vulgarity that he describes. And there's a lot of cleverness, especially I think in the improv from Bill Murray and Chevy Chase that's about wordplay or just weird anecdotes and stuff that's far more clever than what he gives it credit for. Yeah. When we first meet uh, Bill Murray, Carl, Carl Spangler. Um, Spackler, I think. Spackler. Right? That's what yeah. I said. It's a new microphone that changes syllables for me. It's Carl Egon, Spackler. Egon Spangler is uh, the character from Ghostbusters. <laughs> there you go. Harold Ramis. Yeah, yeah, there, there you go. go. So, um, you know, I think the first time we meet him, he's telling the story about when he was caddying for the Dalai Lama, right? And that's a great monologue where, you know, he doesn't, Hey, Lama, they're not going to give me anything for my, for my efforts. And he's like, you know, when you die on your deathbed, you'll have total spiritual enlightenment or whatever he says. And he goes, so I got that going for me, right? You know, <laughs> just fun stuff like that, which is smart and just like a little underplayed as opposed to like the turd scene, which I'm, sh you know, got a huge reaction when it was in the theater. I'm sure it would have. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, that is very broad, but I love the underplaying both Bill Murray and Chevy Chase the way that they almost toss off these punchlines like you barely even notice them and it makes them even funnier. I, I agree with you. And I think this is some of the best that Chevy Chase does of it. Cause like when we watched Caddyshack too, he's almost like he's gone a level below it where it's like, now nah, you're not even trying, right? He's trying just enough here to make it be like, oh, that's so natural. Like where he's like, yeah, you're not good at golf at all. Right. And then he'll just like walk away where you think he's gonna be like, yeah, you can uh, do better or whatever. But he goes the opposite way with the punchline. And yeah, I think he's very funny in this as well. He really is. He really is. Um, so Jason, this seems like a movie that you probably had seen uh, when you were younger and appreciated. Yeah, I it's fun. It's just a fun movie, you know, good rainy day, hour and a half. I don't know the first time I saw it, but uh, it's always enjoyable. Yeah. Dave, this obviously seems like your kind of movie as well. Did you watch this as a kid? 
Funny enough, uh, this was one that I only ever watched once, I think, as a kid. And I don't remember liking it that much. Like, I remember it was like the one of those early 80s comedies that everybody like has growing up, everybody of our age, you know, and I just didn't connect with it. Maybe it was the golf part. I don't know. But uh, I really liked it this time around. though. Your parents didn't make you rewatch the nude scene over and over when you were <laughs> in elementary school. I probably watched that scene a couple of times. <laughs> that was middle school. Right. <laughs> yeah. And of course, and I had never seen this. Um, I don't remember if friends of mine, you know, were into it when I was a kid. Cause I did see a bunch of these uh, 80s kind of lowbrow comedies um, when I was younger, but for whatever reason, never had gotten to Caddyshack. So, and that's why I think coming to it now, I thought, oh, this is the moment for me to even kind of like this has probably passed. But I was pleasantly surprised. I, I enjoyed it. So hooray. Uh, hooray. Yes. So Jason, you, you, as you said, you read the whole book on the making of Caddyshack. So uh, any other insights on the background? Let's start with chapter one. Uh, <laughs> no, hey, this Josh, podcast is now an audiobook. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's so fun is I have to say, Josh, um, because we've talked about him before and he's crazy and we've ripped him for his, you know, not, not his best ideas. But John Peters, who produced this, was uh, essential to making this a hit. Um, when they were in the editing room trying to put it together, he was the one who suggested the gopher. So, you know, which, as we know, he suggests giant robot spiders and all these crazy things. So they might have had the gopher like as a little bit like just thing, but they didn't, ha they didn't actually have the animatronic gopher or the thing tying it together. And he was the one who suggested, what if the gopher is the, th is the through line? And he also did like a lot of things where he would protect the crew from like Mike Metavoy, who was the executive or like the country club when they didn't want like the uh, course blown up, he would like take them on like riverboat cruises. And so they would blow up the course while all the rich patrons weren't there. So it was kind of fun as crazy as we know that he is. Um, to read about the good things that John Peters did. Of course, he also did bad things on this film. Like we just mentioned that nude scene with Cindy Morgan playing Lacey Underall. When they were shooting that, Peters uh, sent a Playboy photographer to the set and he was going to shoot stills of it and just put her in the magazine. And she said, no, I don't agree to that. I agree to do this for the movie because it makes sense in the movie, but I didn't agree to that. That's just exploiting me. And John Peters said, uh, you're not invited to the premiere anymore. So she, he uninvited her to the premiere and another cast member ended up taking her and she just looked at him and said, surprised to see you here, which was a good, good riff. He is both a, uh, uh, an awful dick, but it was fun to at least read that he did some good things, I'd say. Yeah. Interesting Hollywood figure there, John Peters, who we talked about in our episode on, on Wild Wild West and of course memorably played by Bradley Cooper in Licorice Pizza. And uh, Warren Beatty in Shampoo, supposedly. Yeah. I, that's a, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy that um, all of that probably comes from his uh, boundless self-confidence, and some of it is t towards making the movie better, and some of it uh, not so much. But um, yeah, it was funny to see his name. I hadn't realized he was one of the producers or maybe the main producer here and seeing his name in the opening credits there. Yeah, in the book, they go into detail about like Animal House is such a success and like everyone wants these guys, right? And Peter's had like a young exec at an Animal House screening and he got like Ramis and uh, Kenny um, to come in. He's like, we'll make we'll make a movie with you. And, and everyone was like, what? How did John Peters get those two before anyone else? You know, 
<laughs> yeah, he had that magic in Hollywood, at least for a little while. So uh, we will come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Caddyshack. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about our notable feature debut, Caddyshack from Harold Ramis. And uh, I feel like I've just been, you know, repeating myself that I was pleasantly surprised with this film and found it amusing when I often don't like this kind of movie. So uh, I'll just say that again. That is how I felt. But um, Jason, what's your favorite (laughs) thing about Caddyshack? I think we mentioned it. It's uh, I mean, look, it's interesting to me that like Rodney, this was the one that like made Rodney Dangerfield transition from stand up to um, film, like as a film star. I really like Ted Knight as like the opposite, right? Like he, you know, he's that old school actor who obviously did not party with these guys into the wee hours of the night, but he really, you know, goes all in on the, like, if you're, uh, you know, the, the injustices that these people are doing to him. So the four stars really do hold up. We've already mentioned Murray and, and Chase and, you know, so, I mean, I do think that's what holds this whole movie together. Yeah, and Ted Knight really has kind of a thankless role because while Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield get to kind of riff and be funny and they know that if the, well, if the movie works, the audience is going to be laughing with them and enjoy them. And Ted Knight has to come in and be as, was it Ebert, whoever described him as apoplectic and just be the guy who shuts it all down and he doesn't get to have his own funny bits per se. So, um but he commits to it, like you're saying. He That's what is so funny about it. Right, right. And he he makes it funny by not trying to be funny, by just playing that role straight. So um, I think that is a tougher thing to do. But I will say, as much as I enjoyed Bill Murray and Chevy Chase in this movie and their improvisations, which I think are some of the funniest bits, I kind of felt the opposite about Rodney Dangerfield, where he's coming in and obviously he's also improvising, but it feels like he's just doing his stand-up. Like he just walks in the country club and starts doing a Rodney Dangerfield routine. And I guess I don't find him all that funny. And it also just didn't seem like it fit as well as those other improvs that Chase and Murray do. I thought you would not be a fan of that. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, that tracks, <laughs> Yeah, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a big personality and there are those rich guys who are gruff, rough around the edges. And I, I mean, that's what he is, but they cast him because of, they wanted him to play Rodney Dangerfield. Right. So, sure. um, you know, you wonder around this time, like, you know, he was on that like run where he was just killing on the tonight show all the time. And he was a unique personality and they thought they had a vehicle that can serve it. And obviously it worked, but I, I, I get it. Josh, I obviously you don't like him as much as Bill Murray and Chevy Chase in this, but uh, do you like him more than Jackie Mason uh, in, in the sequel? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe we'll talk more about the sequel in a little bit. But yes, Jackie Mason is much worse. And obviously it was, you know, was cast to replace Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. In you know, sequel. the problem, Josh, is with Rodney Dangerfield, uh, you give him uh what, what is it that I'm looking for? Uh, he can't get any respect from you. That is exactly <laughs> the case. Yes, I, I don't give him that. So, but no, I mean, obviously, Jason, you're, you're right that he's doing exactly what they want him to do. They want him to come in and do Rodney Dangerfield. And he does. He delivers exactly what he's supposed to deliver. I just felt like, and I don't know if this is literally stuff from his stand-up routine or it just feels like it is. But to me, whereas... 
with those other Bill Murray and Chevy Chase bits, it feels like them riffing off of Caddyshack, off of what might have been in the script or what is the story. Understood. This yeah. doesn't feel like that at all. Yeah, well, that that has to be part, you know, Harold Ramis is directing it, so he's giving him, like, the kind of imperative of the scene, so, you know. But I think that goes to, like, the bigger point, which is, like, the movie opens, and it's got a funny scene at the Noonan household, and you see, like, there's 12 kids and, like, one or two bathrooms, and it's funny, and then you're like, oh, I guess we're never going to see them ever again, right? And it's like, the dad's funny. You know, there was a lot there that could have been a thing but again structurally it's it's not much for structure so yeah yeah it so really that's, isn't that's where we're going right we're on this this high wire and sometimes we fall off and uh or fall down but we seem to make it across to the end yeah that scene though does really stick out because we spend so much time and it's kind of jarring at first or at least again for me because of maybe what i expected out of this movie i was like who are these people where are we? What is happening here? Well, then, yeah, the first 10 minutes is that. And then Lou Loomis, played by Brian Doyle Murray, talking to the caddies. So you think it's going to be a movie about the caddies. Right. And there's there's the other caddy that Danny Noonan has kind of like a rivalry with and they have a fight and he's got like that his brother. Nowhere. Right. Yeah. None of that goes anywhere. <laughs> and I mean, Danny, at least, continues to show up throughout the movie. He's the caddy for... Uh, for Chevy Chase's character, and he's trying to get his scholarship, so he's got to impress the judge, the Ted Knight character. So he's at least still there, even though sometimes it feels like the movie has forgotten about him. But any of those longer subplots, you, you're right, we never see his family again. We really don't see very much of those other caddies. Uh, Brian Doyle Murray as the caddy's boss kind of shows up here and there. That's a sh that's a smaller, you know, kind of side character. Right. And, and I'm sure because, you know, he's the co-writer, he gets a little part for himself. Um, but I mean, there's also a subplot about Danny's girlfriend maybe being pregnant and possibly they're going to. It doesn't work talk about her having an abortion or suddenly it gets weirdly serious. And then it almost feels like they were like, oops, because then like three scenes later, she just shows up and she says, oh, oh you know what? I'm not pregnant. Never mind. Forget that whole plot. That's Sarah Holcomb, uh, who I think this was maybe her last movie. Yeah. Uh, having to play uh, the Irish. She was dating Brian Doyle Murray at the time, and she was originally going to play Lacey Underall. But I think Cindy Morgan is that bombshell type that you want to play that. And instead, Sarah Holcomb played, I think, requested to play Maggie O'Houlihan. And uh, that was not a good really decision. I don't think, I think she's a weak, weak uh, link in this film. Yeah. She's really bad. And her accent is yes. so terrible. Like at first I thought, is she supposed to be like Eastern European or something? And then I guess she's supposed to be Irish, but then sometimes she just sounds American and it, it, they should have just not, I don't know why they wanted her to well, have an accent in the first place. If we lose that character, do we lose anything from the movie? Really? No. And honestly, most of the interactions with that character just make Danny look bad because he's kind of treating her very dismissively while in the meantime, sort of attempting to get with Lacey Underall, who's obviously not, you know, she's interested in Chevy Chase, but it, it just does. Yeah. Not, nothing about that character works. None of those storylines work. It, it could have just been completely got. Josh, Lacey Underall is a very liberated, sexually, um, you know, powerful woman. She kind of gets what she wants in this movie at all times, huh? Yeah, no, good for her. But I'm I'm saying that in relation to her, Danny looks bad because he's got this girlfriend who's clearly 
like his actual girlfriend. They've been together and uh, he's just kind of blowing her off half the time to go try to get with Lacey Underall. I, I mean, the, the you know, there is a line where she says, how do you even know the baby's yours, Danny? Right? You know? <laughs> I so, think that was better than her accent. <laughs> so you don't know. Maybe she, maybe they're just, you know, like the set itself, maybe there's an era of promiscuity and liberation going on there. I so. mean, there if if that's what it's meant to be, I think they really fail to pull that off. I, I think what's interesting though is like, you know, where we know there are things that don't work, but these are not things that anyone remembers from the movie. You say the name Noonan and you know, you think of Noonan, Noonan, you know, and I'm like it's all the golf jokes and the clubhouse banter and that scene with Bill Murray and um and a Chevy Chase, which was not in the script, where you know he's playing through uh, through Carl Spackler's uh, weed grass and everything like that. So. Right, and that's true. But I think, on the other hand, like I said, again, uh, just knowing this from kind of pop culture, I expected all that stuff that you were just describing, and then was surprised that there was so much other stuff in the movie. Like they do spend a lot of time. Like if you watch this movie, you have to sit through. Danny and his girlfriend and and the caddies in the shack and the fight between Danny and the other caddy, it's all there. So I, I feel like they could have gone one step further and just gotten rid of all of it. And maybe that would have been a funnier film, although it would have had even less of a plot. Yeah, I don't even know if that would work as a narrative, but hey, who knows? <laughs> Jason, you read that book. Did they talk at all about trying to find a balance between like the original script idea and just being a joke delivery system? I mean, basically... They got into the editing room. They stalled as long as they could. Nobody could get this thing to work. Um, and then, like I said, John Peters came up with that like through line, which is really just a bumper to move from segment to segment yeah. when there's nothing else yeah. to do, right? So, you know, obviously they all agreed like, hey, these are the funniest people. We're going to focus on them. And that's kind of how it went. Yeah, I mean, and if it's, if it's that at that point when you're in the editing room, you can't go back and shoot more scenes, because you would certainly have needed more. You would have needed more of Chase and Murray and Dangerfield in order to make this movie work entirely without the caddy uh, characters. They did shoot all that animatronic gopher stuff, though. That's from John Dykstra, uh, his shop. When they, Dykstra won three Oscars, you know, Star Wars, all this. And all that stuff is shot afterwards. Like, I think- Okay, the, so, the, yeah. Yeah. But that's all on like a California, like they literally built the tunnels for this gopher to run through and everything like that. So, um, you know, and maybe like they were able to get Bill Murray to come out or for another day or two, like, which seemed to happen a lot. Like he was scheduled there for like, you know, six days. And then they're like, hey, Bill Murray's really funny. Let's fly him back next week. And they had to get like Lord Michael's permission and everything. Yeah. Um, so maybe there isn't the possibility of restructuring the movie like that. You know, Josh, we're talking about some of these like minor characters that don't work, but like, how about like the Bishop character? That's hilarious where, you know, he's a good man of faith and he's playing now the best round of his life in the rain and uh, everything, you know, he's just going for it. And then the lightning strikes and he has to call the round off and then he becomes a drunk who doesn't believe in God anymore. I think that's a really funny commentary on how important golf is to this guy. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly funny bits um, uh, around the margins of this movie in, in various ways, but the bits are what make the movie. And uh, sometimes it gets, uh, it gets away from them a little too much. But I agree. I, I, I 
laughed at a lot of the little stuff. And the gopher is fine. I mean, the gopher is completely ridiculous, but I think, and especially compared to Caddyshack 2, this movie has just the right amount of gopher where you're amused by it, but it doesn't become like a cartoon at any point. And it's really about uh, Bill Murray's obsession with getting the gopher. Um, and it's funny. And But seeing the gopher dance, eh, that's amusing. I laughed at it. It's, it's dumb, but funny. Dave. Mm-hmm. Kenny Loggins, huge uh, sound machine, soundtrack oh, machine yeah. of the 80s. This was probably the one that broke him out, right? I'm all right. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be. If if not this one, it was, you know, right around this time with, with one of those other just, he was so huge in that moment. Yeah. That's, I mean, it is, it's, it's like an extremely catchy song. It's it is. Um, very, uh, it's a good way to bring you into the movie. In the book, he said he watched a rough cut and like, knew the song like almost right away and like went to his kitchen and wrote it in like two hours or something. <laughs> Sounds about right. He's a machine. That kind of <laughs> yeah, he really is. I mean, like when you think of 80s soundtracks, we've talked about like, you know, Harold Faltemeyer and everything like that. Kenny Loggins is right there, right? Yeah. Right. And it's about, I mean, he doesn't write the scores, but those songs that, you know, he can get so many of these pop hits from a variety of kinds of movies too. And he he can go in his kitchen for two hours and write a song that's perfect for uh, different kinds of movies. I'm all right. Peaked at number seven, Josh, on the Billboard show. I'm surprised it wasn't higher. It's uh, I bet he still plays it in concert all the time. Don't nobody worry about him. <laughs> so uh, anything else we want to talk about with this uh, film? I want to. Uh, uh, you know, we mentioned Ted Knight. How about his little? Um, speech to Chris in the fly, the the flying wasp his boat and just how sincere he is with that poem that he reads that is like it's somewhat makes sense somewhat nonsensical but totally off brand like it's just so far removed from the reality of humanity and it, he's just kind of wonderful with that yeah and i think that goes back to what we we're saying is that he commits to the role of this pompous idiot and he doesn't get to make weird jokes like the rest of the cast does, but he fits perfectly in there. And it's funnier when Rodney Dangerfield comes in and destroys his boat because he's been so serious and he's been so convincing as the guy who is so tied up in the having a boat or whatever. It makes it funnier when the wrecking ball of Rodney Dangerfield comedically and literally comes in and destroys it. So yeah, credit to him. Should we give Caddyshack a rating out of uh, five gophers? Uh, sure, five dancing gophers. It gets three dancing gophers from this guy. And you're dancing. I- I'm actually going to agree with you. I also will give it three dancing gophers. You know, amusing, fun. I liked it. Dave? I'm going three and a half. Uh, oh. I liked it a little more than you guys. Yeah. I've sort of, I feel like this is the kind of movie that Dave, if you came in and you gave it a five, it wouldn't necessarily surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool, Josh. Let's come back and talk about the legacy of Caddyshack. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1980. We've been talking about the first feature from Harold Ramis, Caddyshack. And I mean, given that, maybe the first thing we should talk about with the legacy is Harold Ramis himself, who even prior to directing this film had established himself 
as a major comedy writer in Hollywood, uh, as we said, Animal House and Meatballs, and continued on both as uh, a director and a writer for a lot of really big mainstream comedy hits. Uh, I mean, he worked with Chevy Chase again on the first Vacation movie, working with Bill Murray on Groundhog Day, both of those as a director. He was the writer on Ghostbusters, as we've talked about in our 1984 season, as well as a co-star in that, and just had hit after hit through the 80s and 90s, uh, some of which are eh, not as good. Analyze this and analyze that. Analyze this was a big, big hit, though. Right. No, I, 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 it was a big hit. Well, I'm saying maybe it wasn't a, a great movie, but it was I certainly like a big one. hit. I like that one. I mean, fun. the sequel's whatever, but I like that one. Yeah. And then the other one that I, we should mention is Back to School, which he wrote for Rodney Dangerfield. He did. And, uh, of course, uh, slightly less notably for Rodney Dangerfield, he worked as a writer on Rover Dangerfield the animated movie starring Rodney Dangerfield as the voice of a dog who looks like Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, I'm a dog and I get no respect. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's literally a line in the film. Throw me a bone here, huh? I, if, we ever, if we ever did 86, Back to School would probably be my pick, by the way. So. Back to School, Easy Money. Rodney Dangerfield had some really fun uh, movies in the 80s. I don't, I've never seen Back to School. and I don't know if I've seen anything else with him really. But I feel like the thing about Rodney Dangerfield is that he's just like he is here in Caddyshack. He's always just playing I mean, that's Rodney sweet. Dangerfield, yeah. the stand-up. You know? Except Definitely. in, uh, what is it, Natural Born Killers? Didn't he play like a heavy, oh, yeah, yeah. the the father in a very uh, serious role there? Huh? Yeah, totally against type. So, yeah. so Josh, back to Harold Ramis. Yeah, big acting star as well. You had mentioned Stripes, Ghostbusters, Knocked Up, you know. Um, and the one other thing I wanted to say, he won a BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay for Groundhog Day, which is my favorite of his movies and one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Groundhog Day definitely. is great. Yes. Um, so that was for screenplay. There's a Harold Ramis film school at Second City, I think, in Chicago, and it's the only film school dedicated specifically to comedy movies. Yeah. Comedy I mean, film. He, when you the think art of, of com- comedy on film. <laughs> when you think of <laughs> film com- and comedy. Comedy directors. I mean, Harold Ramis is right is right up there. I think he directed 11, 10 or 11 films. So it's not a huge filmography, but the majority of them, big comedy hits, including multiple classics, um, sadly ended his film career on uh, year one in 2009, which is not a good movie. Mm. Um, although he also directed a few episodes of The Office, including after uh, year one came out. So I think that might have been the last uh, the last things that he worked on as a director. And even more sadly, recently, as we weirdly talked about in our Shawshank Redemption episode, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, featuring the digital recreation of the late Ugh. Harold Ramis, played uh, via motion capture by Bob Gunton of the Shawshank Redemption. So mm. kind of ignominious there. Again, I suggest they should have used Dave's hair for that, but... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, you mentioned Rodney Dangerfield, Josh. Uh, look, legendary stand-up comedian, not just for himself, but the young comedian specials. He had that Club Dangerfield. I mean, you know, as a comedian, you know as a comedian that like Sam Kinison broke because of the, the, the young comedian special. Louis Anderson, Rita Rudner, Bob Saget, Yakov Shmirnov. He really paved the way for a lot of comedians to get to the next level. 
Yeah, and I think his legacy is more as a comedian than as an actor, you know, even in some of those movies that were comedy classics, I guess. But it's really just an outgrowth of the the stand-up stuff that he did. Yeah, but what a wonderful thing. Like, can you think, like, who would it be today? Like, what if Ron White had three big movie hits right now? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's more like like Larry the Cable Guy or something who's who he does tried. movies where he just is Larry the Cable Guy. And okay, but no one is ever, no one would ever say Larry the Cable Guy was. Uh, I mean, Cars was a big success, but you know, you don't look back and be like, you could say he's had two to three comedy classics with Rodney Dangerfield. You can't say that about Larry the Cable Guy. No, sorry, no, fans I, of Operation Delta Force. <laughs> Delta farce, man. Come on. Yeah, get it yeah, right. But I, I think you're right that there are a lot of comedians like that that essentially can't escape their stage personas or don't want to escape their stage personas and just want to put it into a movie. And it usually doesn't work. Or we could talk about Carrot Top, chairman, chairman of, the board. of the board. Right. Stuff like that. And it usually doesn't work. So I guess you're, yeah, yes. Give, give credit to Rodney Dangerfield for that. You know, of course, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray both became two of the biggest movie stars of the 1980s in comedies um, and continue to be comedy legends. Um, You know, Chevy Chase has this reputation as being sort of difficult to work with, but at the same time, he's consistently um, making enjoyable uh, films. I mean, he went on from this to work with Harold Ramis on vacation and then make multiple movies in that vacation franchise. He had the Fletch movies in the 80s. Uh, something like Three Amigos. And even later on, I mean, he was very entertaining on Community, although he left it after clashing with a lot of the people working on it. Or even something like Hot Tub Time Machine, which I think is kind of underrated. Dirty Work. Dirty Work is great. We just kind of, when you think of chairman of the board, you think of Norm MacDonald there too. But um, (laughs) uh, because of the bit on Conan, you know what I'm talking about, Josh. Yes, I chairman do. of the board, only if it's spelled B-O-R-E-D. That's classic. <laughs> but uh, no, but I was thinking of um, Hot Tub Time Machine, too, because I think that's the last great thing I remember him in, where he's like doing just fun Chevy Chase stuff. And I mean, look, we know we know the deal with Chevy Chase, right? You know, uh, you wish that he would just get like one home run out there one more time, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Yeah, and and he's very much satisfied with himself. Um, and that can be good in terms of his confidence, but it seems also like he's never willing to make any changes to make himself easier to work with. And as time goes on, it's a bummer. it makes it tougher for him to find projects that are good where people want to work with him. Well, and, you know, like you said, in Community, it was like this big feel-good comeback and, like, people really loved him and um, he just Chevy chased himself out of it, right? You know, <laughs> he, yeah, he did. I mean, he he increasingly made himself difficult, and eventually it was like, well, he's out, and the show went on without him and was still enjoyable, and he lost out on that. Yeah. So a few other things, Josh, I'll I'll roll through for you. Yeah. Michael O'Keefe had a best supporting actor nod for the Great Santini, which is an awesome movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. No. Definitely recommend it. He's a he's a working actor still. And he was in Ironweed, which we mentioned not too long ago. Yeah. Michael O'Keefe works constantly in TV. And I always remember him from his time on Roseanne as right. uh, Jackie's boyfriend, Fred. The wife beating guy, right? Didn't he beat her up? Oh, geez. Maybe he did. Yeah. There were a lot of uh, incongruously serious issues on Roseanne. <laughs> 
Tonight, a <laughs> legend of television, uh, won two Emmys out of six for Mary Tyler Moore, was on Too Close for Comfort. Before all that, he was constantly working anyway. Also, he's another actor. And then Cindy Morgan, Tron. Tron, say no more. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, this, well, was Ted, this was Ted Knight's final film, although he continued working in TV on uh, Too Close for Comfort, as you're saying, in The Love Boat for a few more years. He died in 1986. So uh, it's a bit of a last hurrah for him in film. Bill Murray, you know, we've talked about him uh, with Ghostbusters and with Rushmore, you know, kind of an amazing pivot that Bill Murray had in the last 20 years or whatever, going from this broad comedy background and all those huge hits to working with all these indie auteurs like Wes Anderson and Sofia Coppola and Jim Jarmusch. And it, it, it's kind of amazing how revered Bill Murray is in so many different circles from comedy to indie film. And just like as this weird mythical figure that he's built up over the years. Yeah. He still doesn't have an agent. You have to leave a, a message on the hotline and maybe he'll come back and talk to you. Um, he is in obviously asteroid city, the new uh, Wes Anderson movie. He's got like, you know, five things going on right now. A new Ant-Man greatest beer run ever, which was a big book. And then he's in this uh, limited series with Dave Franco called The Now. A man decides to turn his life around after learning he is the third member of his immediate family to be suicidal. So he's one of the stars of that. Is he um, the suicidal guy or that's Dave Franco? Maybe he's one of them. There's three of no. them in there, right? Okay. So, yeah, that could be uh, Josh, because we have talked about Bill Murray before, I thought like maybe we could mention that he directed a movie once, Quick Change. Quick Change is great. If you haven't seen it, Quick Change is very, very entertaining and I think underrated as a film. Um, and I don't know why Bill Murray never directed again. He, he co-directed that movie. So maybe he was trying to kind of ease into directing and maybe it wasn't for him. Just wasn't but, for, and he yeah, co-wrote The Razor's Edge, which has a, a bit of a cult following now, I'd say. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but um, certainly a multi-talented kind of guy. So I feel like we're putting it off. We got to talk about Caddyshack 2. We can. I just want to say Henry Wilcoxon, who played the bishop that I mentioned earlier, Murray was like fascinated with like him and uh, these other older actors because, you know, he found out that they were like huge stars in the 20s and 30s and they had been forgotten. So that was pretty cool. Caddyshack 2. Let's uh, let, how come that movie is so good, Josh? <laughs> Sadly, Caddyshack 2, not good. Uh, a prime example of a studio determining that we must have a sequel to something that was a big hit. It was eight years later, though. So I think that possibly goes to, Jason, what you were talking about earlier, that even as Caddyshack was a big hit, it sort of built into an even bigger hit over the course of those years and probably being aired on TV and, uh, you know, as home video became bigger and bigger in the 80s. And so 1988, they determined it was time for Caddyshack 2. Harold Ramis actually is credited as a co-writer on Caddyshack 2, although it sounds like maybe they didn't use much of his material. Yeah, I think when you're saying it's eight years later, this was one of those that was probably developed very shortly after. And Danger, Rodney Dangersfield was attached to it and then asked for like a ton of money. And I think that like kind of uh, veered this whole thing off course here. Yeah, and so they replace him with Jackie Mason, not playing the exact same character, but a very similar kind of character who's a real estate developer, who's kind of this uh, uncouth East Coast outsider who comes in and shakes up the country club. Um, and in Caddyshack 2, he has this 
daughter who is kind of, I don't know, she's almost the main character. And she's her, horrible. She she is quite horrible. <laughs> and her whole storyline about wanting to fit in with the rich people. And it, it really, she acts like kind of an asshole for the right. entire she's movie. Horrible. And then gets redemption and also uh Jonathan Silverman, who plays the Michael O'Keefe character, essentially, the the nice guy caddy. He's fine. He's fine. Yeah. But uh Chevy Chase is the only one who actually did come back for Caddyshack 2 and clearly is not interested in being in Caddyshack 2, but that's kind of what makes it funny. Josh, I was going to say, because you're like, he did come back, and I was like, but did he? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> it is but, kind of funny just how, how little effort he's giving, but it's also kind of sad. I mean, it is, but I, I think, you know, you like you were saying before, you know, the way he sort of underplays the punchlines in the original Caddyshack that's really funny, he underplays them even more in Caddyshack 2. And yeah, it, it possibly is because he doesn't care and he doesn't want to be there. But for some of that stuff, especially when the material is not really that good, it's almost funnier the way he's like, yeah, fuck this, fuck everything. You know, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of entertaining. It yeah, it's, it's a mess. It's a horrible um, it's like, you know, it has, I guess, some semblance of a plot, but it doesn't matter because everyone's so bad. So, yeah, yeah, it is. It is quite bad. And one of the most amusing things about Caddyshack 2, uh, which was directed by Alan Arkish, who is a very active user on Letterboxd, including often logging his own films. And if you if you go to Letterboxd and look up Caddyshack 2, the number one review is from director Alan Arkish, who says, I should never have made this movie. There was only one caddy and no shack. What was I thinking? So, <laughs> I mean, he was a hot TV director at the time, and I think he was just looking for that opportunity, right? But I think he probably signed on when it was Rodney Dangerfield, and it was a different picture. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, and he had he had come up in the the Roger Corman school of independent film and found a lot of success directing TV and wanted to get back into films with this. But it's amusing that he's uh, willing to uh, be that candid about it on Letterboxd of all places. Josh, um, John Peters, we mentioned, I really think we should as a group have a book club and read the book Hit and Run, how John Peters and Peter Goober took Sony for a ride in Hollywood about how, um, you know, the Sony Corporation didn't know much about how movies are made. So they gave Goobers and Peters like the free reign to make movies in the 90s. And they just like, as the title implies, just bilk them for everything with little, <laughs> little positive output there, you know. But hey, man, A Star is Born, Flashdance, Color Purple, Rain Man, The Witches of Eastwick, and of course, Wild Wild West. So yeah, John Peters has had quite the career uh, being married to Pamela Anderson for a minute, uh, dating Barbara Streisand. It's Streisand. Streisand, right. Streisand. And being, being immortalized. I don't know how he actually feels about Bradley Cooper and Licorice Pizza, but it's given him this kind of mythical status uh, in addition to what he'd already had. Well, I'm actually in the middle of shampoo right now, and Warren Beatty's great, but that the Bradley Cooper performance is just so awesome in there. So I got, I got to give the nod to Cooper on that one, Josh. You know, we mentioned Doug Kenny. There was that movie on Netflix, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which I think is based on a book, how Doug Kenny and that. David Wayne directed it. Yeah, I didn't like it. Did you like it? It was all right. It was one of his lesser works. And that's like a biopic about the early days of National yeah. Lampoon. Right. Yeah. The book yeah. was called how, you know, the, the subtitle was how Doug Kenny and National Lampoon changed comedy forever. He 
was uh, like Chevy Chase, a big drug user. They all were, but they, it's interesting when you read these books because it's like, ah, it was the seventies, it was the eighties. Nobody knew that cocaine was bad. It must have been interesting to like really, because like we know, you know. And did they? they did didn't. they not? How can you not know that cocaine is bad? I mean, they just that's how they <laughs> felt, I guess. So you know, he was always uh, this Animal House, and he had a very successful production company where there would have been a lot more going on. But he was a huge drug user. When he was in Hawaii, he slipped uh, off of a cliff and fell to his death tragically. Harold Ramis at the funeral had the quote, Doug was looking for a better place to jump when he slipped, uh, yeah. which is a very dark and uh, fair quote for that type of National Lampoon humor. So how many other great movies did we miss out on because uh, of his uh, early demise? We'll never know. Yeah, that is, uh, that is a sad thing. So on that note, then, that is Caddyshack. <laughs> And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. We are on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the platforms. My website, goforjason.com, needs uh, to be blown out of the underground by sticks of dynamite, much like a dancing gopher was not. Uh, Awesomemovieyear.com is serviceable. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, I think this is going to be one of our most interesting episodes ever. We are doing the biggest box office flop of 1980 and one of the most notorious flops of all time, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. So tune in next time for Heaven's Gate, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.